Another episode of Behind the Lens. It's hard to believe we are now at the end of January. Uh, I'm Debbie Elias, create, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers and television and filmmakers. Pam, are you choking in there? Pa okay, Pam's in there. She's in the, in the booth choking, but she'll live. Don't worry about it. She's, she'll be okay. Um, we have another... We're, we're still in awards season. We're less than two weeks away from Oscar. Um, very exciting. A lot of interesting things happened with a plethora of award ceremonies over the weekend. Not the least of which, um, number one, 1917 Directors Guild Award. Um, thrilled for Sam Mendes and for the film. If you haven't seen 1917, do yourself a favor. See it. It truly is a spectacular film. Uh, a big surprise over the weekend came at the Animation Awards, at the Annie Awards. Klaus, the beautiful 2D animation film, walked away with a ton of stuff. Um, really, really shocking. Of course, the shock, a big shock originally with Oscar nominations was No Frozen 2 nominated. Um, and of course, one of my, one of my two big picks in animation for the year, um, what is it? I'm looking, I'm looking, don't mind me. I lost my body. This is one of the most original and unique animation films. The story is enchanting. The music is fabulous. And I love this film. Do yourself a favor. And if you haven't seen it, see it. Academy voters, uh, strongly consider this. Um, my other big animation pick this year is How to Train Your Dragon 3. Uh, it is the, the end of the saga with Toothless, and it is enchanting. It is charming, and the animated visual effects go to new heights. Um so please don't overlook that one either. That's actually, I think it's, uh, it's available on VOD and digital. So if you haven't seen that one, and it's a beautiful family film, um, as is Klaus. Great film for the entire family. Klaus, I do believe you can get on Netflix right now. Um, but so we're just plugging along. Today is actually the Oscar nominees luncheon. And... Because of the Oscar nominees luncheon, an Oscar nominee who would have been calling in live today uh, was kind enough to do a pre-record, an exclusive pre-recorded interview yesterday on Sunday uh, because it's 25-year-old it's Joshua Brian Campbell. He is nominated along with Cynthia Revo for Best Original Song, Stand Up, from the movie Harriet, story of Harriet Tubman. Uh, it's an incredible song. I think that might be, it, 
in all honesty, I think it's going to come down to this song and Elton John for Best Original Song uh, at the Oscars. But we will see. But uh, I had a chance to chat in depth with Joshua yesterday. And a charming young man. He's only 25. He's another one. We are the crop of young talent that we are seeing come up in the industry right now is amazing. Um, young nominees such as Shersha Ronan, such as Florence Pugh, such as Joshua. Over the past few, Jennifer Lawrence, when she first uh, came onto the scene, getting nominated uh, at a young age. So, And then we see great actors that did not pick up Oscar nominations, but they are on the horizon. And that would be some of the young cast from Jojo Rabbit. Uh, Griffin Roman Davis, um, Archie Yates, Mackenzie Thomason, um, brilliant young actors. And in the case of Roman, and I've said it before, I'll say it again, in the case of Roman and Archie, these two steal your hearts in Jojo Rabbit, and it's the first film for both of them. So it's going to be interesting to see where their careers go after the whirlwind of this award season and the notoriety that Jojo Rabbit has, the accolades it's received, uh, the nominations uh, that it still has out there for Oscar. So it's really, it's very heartening to see that we have crops of, of young, next generation talent truly coming up. And, of course, another one is McKenna Grace. Her film, Troop Zero, is out right now. Yeah, see, it's, it is it is just, it's fabulous. It's on Netflix. It's fabulous. It's either Netflix or Amazon Prime. I can't remember right now. My brain is, like, on overload today, as I think almost everybody's is after yesterday's tragedy and the loss of Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and seven other souls in that helicopter crash. And for those of you, if you haven't heard it on the news yet, um, Kobe contributed much to the film industry as well and is an Oscar winner for his short film, Dear Basketball, which if you have not seen it, it is a love letter uh, about basketball. And it is enchanting. Uh, so hunt it down, find it, and see it. But, uh, yeah, we law and the way that Kobe was branching out into so many things, so many projects, not just in Los Angeles and Newport Beach, but across the country um, with, you know, working with homeless, working with youth. But you're trying to promote women, women in basketball, women in sports, women, period, young girls, giving them a platform and a, a leg up. So we have truly lost a champion on and off the court. So my condolences go out to Vanessa and the family and the families of the other the other victims uh, in the crash. So, but, you know, while, while we have sadness, we also have a lot of things to be grateful for. And, you know, movies are a great way to bring everyone together, as is music. And last night we saw that at the Grammy Awards. Um... And we'll just, you know, you just keep moving on. As Kobe always said, just keep moving on. 
Well, right now, we're going to move on because I'm very excited today. Everybody complains. No female filmmakers. Well, joining us at the halfway mark of the show, we have another mother-daughter duo. Many of you uh, regular listeners will remember Davika and Swati Bisay were on a few months ago for Warrior Queen. Uh, amazing mother-daughter combo. Swati directed, Davika starred in the film. Uh, they were both writing it, both producing it. Now we have Nicole Rio, who is a producer, and her daughter, Dakota Gorman, who is writer-director, her directorial debut, and she stars in the film Natural Disasters. So, anybody that's saying there aren't female filmmakers out there, they are there, and Behind the Lens has them consistently. Very excited about that. And I know Miranda Bailey is out there cheering right now over this fact. Um, but before we get to Nicole and Dakota, we're going we're gonna, to, you're going to hear, ah, I'm not talking well either today. Uh, you're going to hear. Uh, my exclusive interview with Joshua Brian Campbell talking about writing the song Stand Up, his collaboration not only with Cynthia Erivo, but also her producing partner and write it, Will Wells, as well as Joshua's producing partner, uh, Gabe Fox Peck. But what's very interesting about Joshua is all of his, his music is an extension of his faith. Um, he happens to be in Divinity School. He attends the Union Theological Seminary in New York. And uh, as a matter of fact, his new latest semester just started on Thursday. So instead of the dog ate my homework, it's I can't do my homework because I'm in an Oscar race. Uh, but he is very passionate about going into the ministry in some form. And he's very passionate how music is an extension of that faith and his desire for uh, to work in the ministry. And as I spoke with him, and as you listen to the song, if you haven't heard it, it is very much rooted in gospel and R&B. Um, yet it fits, the, it fits the theme of the film. And when you listen to the lyrics... The lyrics themselves, and you all get to hear and see Cynthia Erivo perform this at the Oscars on February 9th. And the, uh, the music video, the YouTube music video is out there. Uh, so I, I can't recommend that enough. It's a beautiful, beautiful video. But even the lyrics, they cross demographic, they cross gender, they cross time and space and place. And they're as relevant today as they might have been in Harriet Tubman's day. They're as relevant to immigration and other issues that are facing us about standing up. Standing up and to moving together to a brand new home, looking for freedom, freedom in everything. So take a listen to my exclusive interview with Joshua Brian Campbell talking his Oscar-nominated Best Original Song, Stand Up. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Joshua. How are you? Great. How are you? Well, I'm very happy to be talking to 
to an Oscar nominee. Right. How did you know, has it really sunk in yet for you, Joshua, that you are an Academy Award nominee? Um, I I don't know. <laughs> so I guess so I guess not. Uh, it's really but it's really something. It's um, yeah. It's kind of it wasn't on my list of expectations for 2020. Uh, <laughs> but I, I'm I'm just grateful to be in in this spot. Hey, you know, surprises like this are always good. Yeah, that's true. So talk to me about this song, uh, Stand Up. It is, it's a beautiful song. And the minute you hear it, it stays in your head. It does not leave your head. It's one of those songs that if you play it in the morning, you will keep hearing it in your head. The chorus, you'll keep hearing it all day long but not in a bad way like Baby Shark. So <laughs> well, thank you. Let's Glad just, to know that. Yes, let's qualify that right now. Uh, <laughs> it stays with you in a good way. Great, you know, great. How did you go about composing and writing this song? I always like to foreground uh, for folks that I come from like a sort of pretty specific um, tradition, like the oral gospel, mm-hmm. black Southern musical tradition. That's what sort of groomed me um, before any other musical training, you know. I feel like I learned probably 85% of what I know about music in general from from church. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so those are the sounds that I come from. Um, so when I approached sort of thinking about this piece, um, I don't know, that's my, it, it, it was, it, the, the, the concept was in my wheelhouse, and so this, this style is like, I guess, it comes from a really familiar place for me. Um, as far as the process, when I was first thinking about it, um, no, this doesn't always happen. Sometimes things happen out of order, but I think all the sections of this song sort of came in the order that you hear them. So that hum was the first thing. Um, I think I just, I, I like humming mm-hmm. a lot. It, it feels very uh, visceral, very guttural uh, and, and gritty. And I knew the piece needed some grit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when we first demoed it and I sat down with um, my friend who's one of the co-producers, Gabe Foxbeck, we sort of wanted to create a world to sort of step into, I think. I don't know that we knew it at the time, but like we sort of wanted to create a sound world um, that you could like uh, step into and, and, and feel all those things, um, both from, if, if, I guess if you, if you don't come from that tradition, you would feel them. And if you do, you would like um, recognize them, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, well, I can tell you that for me, Having been to gospel churches in the South, but it was always the music in the church. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the minute I heard Stand Up, I immediately was thinking gospel. The, the basic premise, the basic beat, the basic heart what is there in this. And I just thought, I just think that's lovely. Yeah, yeah. And I also, I, I will say too, I... Um 
before everything else, I'm a vocalist, so I write, um, and I always say write in quotation marks because, you know, I, I, I like transmit things through like making recordings of myself, just little snatches of things, uh, and then coming back and piecing those together um, in community with somebody else who like, you know, can hear the ideas and, 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 and you know, that sort of thing. So, I, yeah, I, could, I, I write as a vocalist, so like, I think I think a lot about, I don't know, the power of a good vocal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, obviously, I was really blessed to have Cynthia as a collaborator um, in this case, because, I mean, talk about a powerful, you know, vocal. Well, this this is the kind of song where your vocal needs to be able to, if, you know, to raise the roof off the church, so to speak. Right, yeah. And, you know, and that's what... Cynthia delivers with the power of her voice, but also the subtlety of it. But it just the words, the construct here. Did you get to see the film before you wrote this, or what, did Terrence just the the you know the composer for the film when Terrence brought you on board? Was it just like okay, you know, this is what's going to happen, or what Cassie said to you? This is what we're looking for. Or did you have that luxury of seeing the film? Uh, it was sort of a process. So we got the, um, we, um, well, I got a brief sort of with the concept. And then I went to work and then eventually was able to screen the film and then eventually get together with Cynthia and rework things. So it was sort of all happening in process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm curious because you are, you know, you're a vocal writer and or an oral traditionalist in terms of your writing. Mm-hmm. When does the actual musical composition come in? Is it concurrent with the, the lyrics as your as snippets are coming to your head? Or do you sit down at some point and then put pen to paper and actually structure out the musical composition? Um so I normally, how and it varies sometimes. Cause, you know, occasionally I will like chart out a full thing if I'm like, you know, I also like am a sort of jazz adjacent. But if I'm like with an ensemble, sometimes I like chart out a full thing. Uh, but that's rare. Uh, normally, what happens like for, for this song specifically, um, I remember recording just about all the parts of it. Um, just on melody and then sometimes the words would creep in like I would know one line but I wouldn't know the next line but I knew that like I knew the melody of the rest of the line but I only knew the words for the first part so then later I sat down and look, and like listened back and thought about what I had then I went to pen and paper I guess and, and you know wrote out the lyric you know the early version of the lyric and said okay this works this needs to be adjusted that sort of thing so it's kind of like it's layers. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're com- when you're composing, do you do you compose on keyboard? Because I know that you used to play saxophone, and somehow I don't think that you're playing saxophone when you're writing the the melody for a song. No, I'm not. <laughs> I um, I it just depends. Most of the time, I I stay away from keyboards. Um, I'm not really a a, a keyboardist per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, and some things when I'm writing, I 
will go there first and rely upon that. But for this song, it was really like, um, just like piecing together this melody and mm-hmm. following it. And then we like went into, when we demoed it, we sort of like created the world around it, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Now, what was it like collaborating with Cynthia and her typical producing partner, Will? Um, did you guys all get to actually sit in the same room, you know, with collaborations? <coughs> Excuse me. So often, somebody's in one room and will pass something back to another, or they'll email it, or they'll send, you know, a musical soundbite over the internet. Did you guys actually get to sit in the same room? I don't think all four of us uh, were all in the room <laughs> at the same time, but I know like different configurations of three of us were together at different times, um, which was really cool. Um, It was just, it was, I think it it worked well because it was like these two teams of people who like knew each other really intimately um, and just knew like how to bring out the good stuff Mm -hmm. in in each other. which I think is, I mean, that's the only way I know how to do music is with people who know how to bring out the good stuff in me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really grateful for them. Um, and it's such a rare, well, I'm, I'm going to assume it's rare. I haven't like written for everybody in the world, but uh, I think it's, it seems like it's a pretty rare blessing to um, write for and with someone who is as keen and sharp and, and who knows their instrument as well as Cynthia. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really awesome. Like just her just having a really intimate sense of like what makes her tick and what makes her sound good, you know. So that mm-hmm. was cool. And of course, by the time you wrote this, she had already shot the film, I believe. So she had the character of Harriet imbued within her at that point. Right, and that was I think that was key. Like not only just her as a you know musician which is enough alone but like to have worked with the person who stepped into this character um because the agenda for me was like not necessarily to write you know some award-winning song in all honesty it was the agenda was to you know make a piece of music that sounded good and to make something that would honor Harriet Tubman mm-hmm. and to like do that with the person who had and for all intents and purposes become Harriet you know um, that was, I think, really key to success. I mean, I think that the lyrics, going beyond just the music, but the lyrics truly encompass not only Harriet Tubman, but any fight of any people around the globe. It's very universal what you have come up with from a lyric standpoint. Thank you. Thank you. You know, that, that really stands out. Uh, to me I'm curious Joshua because you are everything about your life is it's rooted in your faith it's the ministry and you're in divinity school have you stepped back from divinity school what's happening with that because this is more and more filmmakers composers people I'm talking to faith is playing such a big part in the direction that they're taking professionally and I don't want to see it derail your divinity school, though. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm in seminary. I am I'm still I'm still there. In fact, the semester started 
on Thursday, uh, and I'm in LA, so I'm, I, I sent out a big wave of emails to all my professors, uh, being like, "Hey, I'm I'm gonna be back and forth to LA for a little bit, so please forgive me if I'm kind of off kilter." But I have I have a great dean. Uh, shout out to Dean Pamela Cooper White at Union Theological Seminary, who's really kind and um, is, is helping me work through this sort of rough patch, I guess, with everything going on. But no, I, to answer the question, uh, I, I definitely intend on keeping going. I'm halfway through my program. And I mean, writing music is integral to my vocational path. Like that's, I, I had a, a friend and a mentor years ago who was like she was the first person to be like well Joshua like you know when you sing it doesn't really matter what you're singing or like when you make music it doesn't really matter what kind of music you're making that's still that's your ministry like um and I never had somebody like that was an aha moment as they like to say mm-hmm. um so I've, I've I've kept that 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 advice and that little nugget close um especially during this time when I think because everything is so hectic and a lot of this was so just unexpected for me, it keeps my feet on the ground to to know like what's important is that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. right? And even though it's not necessarily clear, I think it's going to fit into a broader vision of like what this moment in my life is supposed to be. So, mm-hmm. What school? And, that, and, that, and that's still you know grounded in the faith part. Mm-hmm. What theological school are you going to, if I may ask? Yeah, Union Union Theological Seminary in New York. Ah. You obviously can't use the excuse of the dog ate my homework for not doing <laughs> anything, but I think you can use an excuse, I'm an Oscar nominee and I have to be here. Um, I don't think anyone's ever heard that excuse before. Yeah, I think uh, it, I, I I think that my dean um, shared it with the faculty at like the meeting. Uh-huh. And so a lot of them a lot of them were taken off guard because on the one hand, um, I have tried to sneak in some creative work into my coursework. I've written at least one song I think for a final project because I've been in seminary, which was um, beautiful experience. Uh, and they're open to things like that, but uh, I I tend to you know I. My coursework does, isn't necessarily music related. I, I study like texts and exegesis, and so a lot of Hebrew and Greek mm-hmm. that I'm behind on right now. Uh oh. Um, so I so, but it'll it'll be fine. I think I think that my professors were taken aback because they just didn't know because uh, I didn't really like you know advertise it or anything but around see, campus. I don't know how you are managing to juggle this whirlwind of awards because steadily over the past couple months you've been lauded for this song um very acclaimed but now the whole oscar that's a whole whirlwind all its own but you're managing to keep your to stay grounded and not lose your focus just listening to you and i really commend you on that joshua thank you and i have to thank i i have my family to thank for, for most of that. My brother manages me, um, my mom and dad and grandparents, everybody's just really good at checking up on me and friends too. I have really, I have the best friends in the world. So they, they keep me going. Yeah. You know, I think for me, it's, I, it's helpful to remember that like, once this blows up, well not blows up, but like this, this time period will end 
I have other projects, you know, coming up. I, I'm usually direct a show that just went, you know, on its um, next leg of its tour. I have kids who I have to teach Bible study too on Tuesday <laughs> night. Like, you know, it's, this is wonderful. And all that other stuff is also wonderful. So I'm trying to keep that in mind. How is How do you think you're going to feel as you sit there and you listen to Cynthia sing the song on the Oscar stage for billions, an audience of literally billions? I, I don't know. I, I just, you know, like I said before, I just, you know, I, I hope I, I'm making music that people like. I hope people take something from it. And one thing I've learned, you know, just over as my writing practice has sort of ramped up over the years is that once I write something or co-write something or put my hand on something and then give it to the world, what they, what people take away from it can be totally different from what I intended or what my like thought process behind it was. So I'll just be sitting there hoping like whatever people need, they can get from that piece and I'll be honored. So, you know, I, I love talking to you, Joshua. It's so refreshing to talk to a young voice and a young mind um, that isn't jaded by Hollywood. <laughs> um, right. I'm curious, what is the gift that music gives to you? You give so much. What you write, what you put out there, what you've done with this song, what you did with the song that you did um for Sandra Lewis, absolutely, that we all heard and have seen on YouTube. Um, what is the gift that music gives to you? Um, it's sort of kind of a lifeline. It keeps, I think it keeps me, um, I don't know, it can, it, you know, can pull me out of depression. Like, the, I, I, I'm just always singing. Uh, it kind of, it kind of is like the gift of life and that I really can't separate music from my life at this point. I'm, I'm always sort of like floating around in sound and in music, um, which I, I mean, I think is probably the, the best and only way for me to be. So it's, I mean, it's, it's, Besides the gift of being able to give that to other people, it really does like keep me going in a very like basic way. And that was my conversation yesterday with Oscar nominee for Best Original Song, Joshua Brian Campbell. He is just he's so sweet, he's so genuine. Um, and you can tell he's, he is really a little overwhelmed. Uh, but I think it, I, as I said, I think it's going to come down between, uh, between Joshua and Cynthia's song and Elton and Bernie, uh, for Oscar. So we shall see. Um, and as everybody knows, my pick would be Elton and Bernie. The very first award the two of them have ever won together in 52 years of their collaboration. So I've got my fingers crossed for them come Oscar night. But right now, we're going to bring on 
a mother and daughter filmmaking team. Oh no! I think you're both there, Nicole. Are Hi. and Dakota? You're both on. Yes, we are, yes. Debbie. Thank you. Oh my God, mother and daughter. Okay, let's just get the first <laughs> the the big question out of the way here, ladies. Who had final say? When it, <laughs> Do you really have to ask, Debbie? Um, Obviously, it's mom. Luckily, <laughs> Obviously. Actually, I think we were very lucky where we just happened to agree, and we're like, okay, we don't even have to address that issue. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's yeah. You know, I mean, I love this. You're the second mother-daughter combo filmmaking team I've had on the show in the past four months. And oh wow! Yes, it thrills me to no end. Um, Swati Bisay and her and her daughter Davika uh, did the film Warrior Queen of Yancey. Um, yes, that's right. The mm-hmm. the historical film, which is a stunner with battle sequences and. I think you got to work your way up to this, Dakota, just so you know. You know, battle sequences, a cast of 800 people. Um, but keep going with mom in your corner. You know, in in their case, it was mom who was directing. and Wow. And directing her daughter. So needless to say. Mm. <laughs> well, well. Oddly enough, we do have a series of war drama on the rise, so we're getting into that 800 uh, battlefield uh, scenario soon. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, I'm just so th- I'm so thrilled for the two of you. You know, there's so much discussion lately about there are no film, uh, female filmmakers, and uh, there, people okay. were complaining on social media. So I just did, within the past 12 months alone— on this show, how many female directors and writers I had on the show. And I just did a thing on Facebook and people are like, oh my God. And yeah, female filmmakers, you are out there. Yes, we are. You are there. It's time to be heard. <laughs> uh, well, you definitely were heard uh, just the other, last week or so at LA Women in Film Festival. Two sold out screenings, I understand. Yes, we were very excited. I think the second screening sold out in six hours. And then we started to panic and be excited at the same time. (laughs) Right, Dakota? Yeah, I mean, for me, the film is still in its final stretch. We're not completely locked on it yet. So it was this feeling of being so excited to share it but also knowing the little things that you want to fix and they're not ready yet and I'm definitely a perfectionist so I was going a little crazy but it still got a really positive response (laughs) so I am so grateful for that well you know having seen the film it you know something I find really interesting is the subject matter of the film and mom is a producer uh, on Mm -hmm. this film because you get very intense in some of the the girls' night discussions that, okay, I, I mean, if my mother were alive to this day and I'm 62, I would never, ever, ever say anything like that in front of her. So, did, I'm with you, Debbie. Yeah. It's a whole generation, I suppose. You know, did you do this, Dakota, to torment your mother when you wrote this to embarrass her? Definitely, definitely not 
consciously. Uh, maybe there was a subconscious element there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky in that we have a very special dynamic. Uh, Nicole, you were a single mom, so I think that bonded us. She was mm-hmm. very young. So we've mm-hmm. always been able to talk to each other in a way that was very open. Mm-hmm. And I remember even being in middle school talking to her about stuff and people being like, you've talked to your mom about that? And I would just be like, you haven't? <laughs> That's what she's there for. Um, and I think in the filmmaking process of this, when you're when read the script so many times and you've kind of talked about everything and you're in the editing room, you become desensitized to it at a certain point, at least for me. So the awkwardness had dissipated between us. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, what was the genesis for this, uh, this script? I mean, three girls, BFFs in their twenties, um, they're trying to figure out careers, guys, everything in between. And, of course, the only way to resolve or get any kind of compassion or understanding or venting is girls' nights in or out with a lot of alcohol involved. Um, so I'm curious, where, where did this start, Dakota, for you as the writer? Um, I think it was the confluence of all of those elements going on in my life or the people around me. I've been born and raised in L.A., uh, but I've had difficulty connecting with women out here. So my girlfriends, I hold very, very, very close, and they, interestingly, have had trouble connecting, too. So it was really important to me to kind of explore what a positive female bond would be. And when that dynamic is just completely supportive and non-judgmental, even though each of the people involved are flawed in their own ways, and not having to feel like you have to be this archetype of how a girl should be and poised and classy and at all moments, you can be those things, but I think there's this pressure sometimes uh, that is still getting filtered out through female friendships. And obviously... I think there's a whole sect of people everywhere, not just in L.A., but that are struggling to kind of make what they want in their life happen. Mm-hmm. And you you get caught in this, you know, whether it's a financial bind or an emotional bind or you have medical issues and you, you just get overwhelmed by life. And in American culture specifically, I feel binge drinking is, is celebrated and it's very easy to fall into the trap of I've had a very long day I wanted to drink afterwards and then all of a sudden it's five years later mm-hmm. and you are an alcoholic without the label of being an alcoholic and I only say that from my personal experience of having had a drinking problem and not realizing it until I'm like I'm going to try and drink for a week and it was the hardest thing and it took me about a year to to rebuild that habit. Wow. Well, and something you said something very key about you know the girl you know girlfriends and here we've got Morgan Casey and Sage, and you play Sage and I have to say I think you are fabulous in the character. And oh, thank you so much. And your chemistry with Dylan Lane, 
who becomes the mutual object of, of affection between Sage and his character of Kyle. The most authentic relationship on screen and watching the arc as that relationship develops is so honest and so pure and a joy to watch. Um, but it's in crafting the women and yes, they are non-judgmental until a point. And even best friends, there comes a point where there is going to be some judgment that may not be ruin the friendship for, lo- for life, but it gives it an, an interesting new twist and dynamic. And we see that play out with the character of Morgan. We see it play out with Casey. Sage pretty much... She she's the one that really has 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 herself together more than the other two, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird how that is because on paper or on a superficial level, she's the one who's not really following a career. She doesn't have a stable relationship, but she is the most grounded one, and I think her relationship with Kyle is the most promising too, even though it's kind of the most comedically dysfunctional in the same way. But that's because neither one, there are no expectations there. There's no expectations. And that's what's so beautiful about what you create in that coupling. And I love watching Sage and Kyle together through all of the hilarity, sitting out by the dumpster, um, it's not exactly how you imagine. It's not the Disney princess idea of find, <laughs> of finding a guy. And but it's so refreshing to see this. Really refreshing, Dakota. Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm flattered in several ways, but I think you encapsulated that perfectly where there's something really special about their dynamic because they weren't looking for it. It kind of just evolved. And I think that's what happens in, you know, youthful romance when we're teenagers. So we just like people because we like them. Mm-hmm. And there's not, we're not searching for these qualifications and we're not taking our uh, adult baggage into play. And you just like being around that person. And that's really what it is for them. Like you said, zero expectations of anything and just enjoying each other's company. Mm-hmm. You know, Nicole, when did how early did you get involved in this project? Oh, well, I think as early as as, as one can. Um Coda had written this almost as a purge during a time um and a difficult time she was going through. Mm-hmm. So I think the entire script was actually done in a period of two days. Wow. If I'm not mistaken, Dakota, or two and a half days. <laughs> it so, was refined uh, definitely but the bulk of it was two days yeah. mm-hmm. yes and so when I read it I just you know I felt it was such an honest film it was such a um, you know it was just about the human condition and these relationships that um, you know Dakota's generation are experiencing and um, you know, I related 
to it immediately because of the authenticity of the dialogue, which, mm-hmm. you know, Dakota is so great at capturing. Um, and I could relate to it even in my generation. And so I thought to myself, you know, this has to be heard because it's also addressing, like Dakota said, this generation that doesn't have the tools necessarily to deal with their shame mm-hmm. or, you know, um, you know, emotional instability um, and, you know, now the world around them with the social media platforms and all of, um, you know, these ideas of um, having to be a certain way or have a certain level of perfection in one's life, it puts a lot more pressure than when I was growing up, but I can not, you know, nonetheless, you know, relate to it. So I talked to her about it. We had a table read and I just hit, hit the ground running and, you know, uh, put out to all my relationships until, you know, a few um, angel investors came on board and we got it done um, with very little resources and time, but we just never believed we couldn't get it done, even though we were told we couldn't, but we still did. (laughs) So I'm very proud of, you know, the way we all pulled together. Our crew was fantastic, amazing, smiles on their faces the whole way through, even though we had some grueling days and long days. Our cast was very specific, and we were very specific in casting these roles, and we had a difficult time finding the right cast at first, I think, right? Because we were casting it ourselves. Uh, I mean, there's just, you can go so many different directions with the characters because they're not fitting at the same mold, I think. So it was really for mm-hmm. us defining how we wanted each of the people to feel. But I think once we came across the people who we ended up casting, when we crossed paths with them, it was just obvious. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you did a great job casting Dylan Lane to play opposite yourself, Dakota. Um, you bring in Emma Deckers. She is she is definitely an actor to watch. There is something about her on screen that just lights up. She has a very she is commanding, um, very confident on screen, and I love her performances, Morgan. And you did a beautiful job in casting Matt Angel as Loic, the guy she gets partnered up with. Of course, he does turn out to be a cheating scum, but because he doesn't like the truth about things. But we won't go there. Um, yeah. And then you get you get Natalie Linez playing Casey and Chris Costanzo as Nathan. And I think Chris truly embodies the mindset of so many guys out there suffering with the Peter Pan syndrome. They never grow up. They don't get beyond high school. Mm-hmm. So I think you did. I'm so an, happy that that came across. Oh yeah, you did an amazing that. job. <laughs> with, with, you know, so you know, Chris can now put on his resume. I can I can play anyone with a Peter Pan syndrome. Um, so you did a wonderful job with casting these roles. You really did. Um, now, Thank did, you. did you always, were you always the intended director for this, Dakota? No, I didn't even realize this movie was going to get made when I first wrote it. Because as Nicole mentioned, it was really a purging exercise for me when I was going through an extremely difficult time in my life. Mm-hmm. And 
Nicole, I think, was just asking me about stuff I'd been working on and naturally fell into her lap that way. And she's really, really good at getting excited about things. And she has an extroverted personality, which is always helpful. So just getting <laughs> it in the hands of the right people there. And um, I think my curiosity as a project was unfolding of just, I'm curious to see what my comedic style would be and if it plays because I know that a lot of people who read the script were kind of misinterpreting the tone of it so I had a discussion with Nicole of you know I would really like a chance to just see what is in my head visually and if it doesn't work then it doesn't work but this is the perfect movie to try it because there isn't an 800 person fleet <laughs> no explosion it's just <laughs> people and I am pretty good at observing people I just love it I I think people are so fascinating with all their idiosyncrasies and mannerisms and vernacular so I just really wanted to and luckily she trusted me enough because uh, I've never directed anything before well and you know and Nicole has a very lovely pedigree and yes I do admit I did see your mother in sorority house massacre <laughs> When and I saw it when it came out. Okay. Oh my god. So. Oh, oh my goodness. Well, that was this a great is a fine circle back to our boundaries with each other because we had that on VHS, and I would bring my friends over in seventh grade and be like, "You want to see something cool?" And just oh no, no, We'll see but now. Actually, I think you know Carol Frank was one of the first female directors There's... that Roger Corman had supported. Correct? Yeah, I think mistaken. so. Yeah, because Roger yeah. was uh, Roger was always at the forefront. You know, mm-hmm. he was Absolutely. always. And yeah, later days it's interesting because I was working um, alongside Brian Grazer for a while, and I had a lot of conversations with. Um, Ron Howard, and, you know, he got to start with, you know, the low budget and, I believe, a Roger Corman film. And he said to me, Nicole, you know, that's how you learn. You're not going to learn on the bigger sets at the moment. You're going to learn by getting in the trenches and figuring things out and just, you know, know, being um, in that space. And we were both fortunate enough, even though it was a challenge. I think both Dakota and I, you know, have learned I mean, beyond what I think you can actually learn in film school at this point. Well, you know, something. Now, once you get in those trenches, um, especially uh-huh. for you, Dakota, you know, you've got, you're now managing all these, all these technical, the artistic departments. You're bringing in Carter Ross as your DP. Uh, you then, you know, cinematography on set is one thing. Your sound, your production sound is one thing. But then you now also have to step into post-production with working with your editor, with Steve uh, Cantor, and then your music. And I'm so thrilled you got Antonio Andrade. Um, He's amazing. I love Antonio's work with what he's done in television, um, composing for series like uh, Man in the the High Castle and Bull. Right, right. I Mm -hmm. love his work. So you really lucked and his out. Film scores too, I think, with it and Serenity. I mean, he's just genius. And you know, they Dakota and Hay really collaborated on this process, which was exciting to see how it evolved. The score, it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Antonio he 
he's such he's so masterful at what he does because there was no temp mm-hmm. music in our earlier cuts. So he was going off of nothing. And I had really only him. My notes were so not helpful because I was like, you know, it's something that's quirky, but quirky is not the right word. Uh, happy, but not too happy. You want like happy sad at the same time. And somehow he was able to decode that. And I really did, which is so impressive. Okay, now hearing that, Nicole, how many times did you want to throw your hands up and walk away and say, oh, my God, child? Um, I love Well, I, I, I've developed a lot of patience throughout the years, but internally yes, there were times where you know, um, I was excited to get to the point where we needed to be. Definitely that post-process was, um, you know, the most challenging, but the most all creative, I think, mm-hmm. in a sense. That, you know, and um, and all of us, you know, you know, Dakota and I, like I said, even though we have different tastes and maybe in music or how you know, something should go down as far as the film or, you know, anything like that, we can come to a compromise and talk about it and really get into what would be best for the film. So that was exciting as well. Great together. You know, Dakota, I'm curious about you working with Carter Ross as your cinematographer, because your cinematographer is really your right hand as a director. Um, So what kind of conversations did the two of you have? Because this was also Carter's first feature. Um, as a DP, so I'm curious about how the two of you went about designing your visual look, the visual tonal bandwidth of the film, so that it would complement the emotional play that we were getting from the script, from the story, and the dialogue. Yeah, um, I, when we had first met, we were aligned pretty much right when the conversation was very short. I pulled up some references as far as just colors and vibe and all of that stuff framing that was important to me and the motion of the frames and all of that and Carter matched my references with uh I was like great yes that's perfect so I knew we were on the same page and he understood the comedic tone which was really really important so it was really amazing to work with him because where I kind of lacked the expertise on technical front or even knowing the verbiage of how to express that, he was able to take my emotional expression uh, and make it a reality. Mm-hmm. So that was really awesome. Well, I have to tell you that your bar scenes look beautiful. Um, the alley scene by the dumpster between Sage and Kyle, it's so beautifully lit. Um and it just looks really sharp, really nice. The coffee shop, it's overly lit the way a, a coffee shop is when you walk in and you get blinded at night. <laughs> you know, if, if the coffee doesn't wake you up, the lighting is going to. Um, but really nicely played in some of those smaller. And the swimming pool scene in the third act is fabulous. It looks gorgeous. Mm-hmm. So you, you've got a variety of stuff, a variety of angles. Um, I notice you try and keep everything pretty much in a mid-shot, a mid-two shot. Um, yeah. And generally because you have more than one person in screen, so it's great. So you get everybody 
So you really don't have to worry that much about a coverage shot. Um, and that's always right. very beneficial in a very, in a low budget, no budget, micro budget film. Um, <laughs> yeah, I hear Nicole laughing was, at that one. Yeah, she knows. Yes. <laughs> no, Especially, was, I love Dakota's play of keeping the camera rolling, which you know I supported throughout the filming too. So we got a little extra on the side there, which she was able to you know brilliantly craft with the editor Stephen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, through post. So, how how was that uh, post production editing process, Dakota? <laughs> um, it was you know it was fun in a lot of ways and just tough in other ways because when it is independent filmmaking and it's your first thing, your all the work effort that you're putting in is not equivalent to the monetary value you're getting back. So I was having to work still work a, a full-time job on top of editing so it was wake up edit for eight to ten hours and then go work a full shift so for that reason it was pretty tough on me but I'd known Steven for a long time we went to college together and so it was really easy to communicate with him we're very aligned artistically and he was very patient in me just saying we're on this online I don't know if we'll have time for you to do multiple passes and me give notes and for can we just get in a room together and I can give you notes as we go and mark my favorite takes and all that uh, and see what's aligning right. Because there was improv we had to integrate, so just knowing what pieces we wanted and how to keep it flowing a certain way. And he just, it was really awesome to see him work and kind of fit, fit things together that we weren't sure we're going to go together. He's mm-hmm. brilliant in that way. You know, I'm curious, Nicole, for you as producer, what was the most challenging aspect of shepherding this uh, shepherding natural disasters so that it did not become a natural disaster? <laughs> um, you know, in all honesty, I think the, the 16 years that I had, um, balance being a single mom of two and also being an EA for some of the top producers and talent celebrities in the entertainment industry. The hours, the um, juggling, the, the, you know, sometimes impossible tasks. Um, I just am very present and very solution-oriented. So though it was challenging and, you know, there were a lot of positions missing on this film um like the post-production supervisor and Mm -hmm. and jobs like that so I just had to kind of jump in and and thankfully my skill set had just taken over and um I was able to get through it and I just stayed you know hyper focused and I trusted my team and that was the biggest thing the post we had five post-production team and they were all just brilliant and showed up and and you know were present with me throughout um, so it made it a lot easier to communicate and what we were lacking, one person would know the answer to. Ariana Payne, who was the colorist on the film, was amazing and, um, you know, uh, covered all aspects of, of, of that part of that that we did not know. So I really just, you know, it was a fast pace and it still is, but, um, you know, exciting at the same time. But at the end, you can just look back and go, well, you know. We mm-hmm. got through that, and it makes it even that much more sweet. Well, you know, unfortunately, we are actually almost out of time. But before 
we go, I have to ask Dakota, you know, what did you learn about yourself? Not necessarily about directing and filmmaking, but what did you learn about yourself in the process of making natural disasters, bringing it to the big screen that will now influence your approach, be it life or be it specific avenues in the future? Um, definitely how to perspective on stress and anxiety. And I mean that in a way of there was every reason to feel stressed or anxious at any moment. I had to stop myself and just say, I'm so lucky. This is what I've been wanting to do. I understand there's a way to be stressed, but there's a way to, to not be stressed. And to just kind of laugh when things aren't ending up how you want and to just know that that's a transition period and it will work itself out and if it doesn't it's a learning curve and to just come in with a more positive attitude because I think I definitely as a person would skew towards the more uh, frantic side of things and so I've really learned to to even in my everyday life now be like hey it's okay it's okay Mm -hmm. if this person's gonna honk at me that's totally fine it's good so um that's been life-changing for me. It's made my life more enjoyable. Well, I can't thank both of you enough for coming on the show today. This has been so much fun. I know you still want to tweak the film, so I really hope that once you retweak it and get a final edit and start shipping it out there to other festivals or and or distribution, I would love to see it again and have you back on the show again. Oh, thank you. Amazing. Thank you so much for having us. Oh my god. I can't I can't wait to talk to the two of you again. You are beyond Yay. thank you, Dad. Thank so lovely. Oh, thank you both so much. And I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, okay, have, have a, a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Nicole Rio, producer and Dakota Gorman, writer, director, and one of the stars of Natural Disasters. Another mother-daughter filmmaking team. I love it. I love it. Well, that is, unfortunately, all the time we have on Behind the Lens today. Next week, we're in February already. Uh, We're going to have a director talking about an amazing documentary, Bastards Road. Uh, I can't wait to have Brian on the show next week to talk about that. And uh, we may have another Oscar nominee uh, preceding Brian. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 